you have your Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's on page 1029, 1029, Revelation chapter 2 this morning. We have been studying through the letters to the churches in chapter 2, and we will go further in the coming weeks into chapter 3 to pick up the last few churches. These churches were real churches, historical churches. And yet Jesus' words find application to the church today, as well as throughout the ages. These letters are of great relevance to the church even now. Last week we looked at the church of Pergamum and their moral compromise. This morning now we turn our attention to the church in Thyatira. And we will see their doctrinal defection, their doctrinal corruption, which led to moral corruption. Last week, we noted that these three middle churches, churches three, four, and five, uh, show to us uh, a, a pattern that what begins in compromise, that's the church of Pergamum, leads to corruption, that's the church in Thyatira, and ultimately then to the death of the church, as we'll see in the church at Sardis. Of the seven cities written to in Revelations 2 and 3, Thyatira is the smallest. It's the least noteworthy. It's the least remarkable. And yet, as you just heard read, it is the longest of the letters. Despite its size and seeming insignificance, Jesus cared about the purity of this church. And those small, Thyatira, had a place, had a position, had a, um, it was the, the, the center, the center of manufacturing and trade, uh, of commerce. It had commerce or business for wool and linen and leather work and bronze work, as well as their, they were known for uh, their purple dye, which some of you might remember in Acts chapter 16, When Paul meets a lady from Thyatira named Lydia, who was described as a seller of purple goods. With all these trades came labor unions and trade guilds. With each had a pagan god. And with the pagan god would come feasts and seasons of, of celebration, which often included sexual immorality. So businesses in Thyatira were linked to pagan practices. Now you can imagine for business owners who are Christian, that would present a problem. If you are a Christian business owner and the, the business union, the, the, the guild, the, 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 the community connected their businesses with pagan practices. That would make it difficult certainly for them. But this is the setting. This is the setting, Uh, this pagan, idolatrous, immoral society is the setting, once again, for the church here, the church of Thyatira. And the letter begins with a statement about Jesus, uh, from Jesus. Look at verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the angel again is the messenger, 
uh, might have been the elder or, or the pastor. Uh, it was the representative of the church. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, this is the only time in the book of Revelation where the designation or the name, the title, Son of God, is ascribed to Jesus. And it is clear that what Jesus is saying about himself is that he is deity. Who is writing this? Jesus. Who is Jesus? The Son of God. Now, not only is it telling us about his deity, but it may be in contrast to a, to a couple things. Uh, one is that there was a god in Thyatira, uh, a temple to a god, uh, the god Apollo, which is the son of Zeus, who was called the sun god, S-U-N. And so here, there, there might be a subtle, though significant, contrast between the sun god, Apollo, and the son of God, Jesus. Also, Caesar was referred to as one of the sons of God. So another contrast here, whereas he may have been referred to as one of the sons of God, here Jesus is the son, capital S, of God. And finally, we can see here in this letter, throughout the letter, references to Psalm chapter 2. And Psalm chapter 2 takes us back to the Old Testament, of course, and it takes us back to King David. And so we're seeing this connection between Jesus and King David. Jesus then is the true and better David. He is the king of kings. This is the son of God. This is deity. This is Jesus who, the rest of the verse says, has eyes like a flame of fire whose feet are like burnished bronze. We've said in each of these letters, there's a statement that takes us back to chapter one uh, of the description of Jesus that he gives to himself. And this goes back to chapter one, verses 14 and 15 that speaks of these eyes like flaming fire. The eyes like flaming fire speaks to, to Jesus being all-knowing, uh, his, his omniscience, uh, of his penetrating perception, that, that Jesus sees it all, that, that here Jesus, the Son of God, has eyes like flaming fire. We'll see more about that in verse 23. And he has feet like burnished bronze. Now, we know that Thyatira, we just heard, Thyatira had, had a trade, had commerce surrounding bronze work. So, so this, this may have been a use of that connection. Feet like burnished bronze speaks to strength. It speaks to splendor. And it speaks to purity as well as judgment. That, that with these feet of burnished bronze, Jesus would crush his enemies. We'll see that a little bit later too. As with most of these letters, after this statement about Jesus comes a, a commendation. Jesus begins with something positive. Look at verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Uh, you already heard it read earlier, that, but, but Thyatira had a big problem. And we're going to see that big problem in, in just a few moments but even with their error, even with their sin, Jesus still started off by identifying what was good. He started off with a positive. He started off with something commendable. And it's a practice worth emulating for us, isn't it? 
that we could look at, at what is wrong with, with everything and everyone, or we could look to what is right first. We can catch people doing good and acknowledge that and celebrate that even when there are other issues that need to be addressed, which Jesus does. This isn't to say we, we, we gloss over problems, but it is to say we acknowledge when things are going good, and Jesus does that to many of these churches where there is something commendable, Jesus commends. Now, we're not saying you make up something, uh, but if there's something commendable, Jesus found it, to, found it something to, to speak. And so he gives five commendations here in verse 19. He knew their works, their good works. Uh, this church was, was a church that was busy in working for God doing good works. They, they were busy sacrificing, uh, living in, uh, busy in sacrificial ministry for the sake of others. They, they were a giving church, clearly. He saw their love and faith. I know your works, your love and your faith. And love and faith serve to motivate our good works. Right? Why do we do good works? Because of love and because of faith. And next we see he saw their, their service and their endurance, or their patient endurance. They persevered in serving, in willingly serving others. Pastor Ray Stedman writes this, or, or spoke this in his sermon. Love leads to service. Faith leads to perseverance. If you love God, you will serve his people. You cannot help it. It is a sign that you love it is a sign that you love that you are willing to serve. And if you have faith, you will persevere. You will understand that God is in control and things will work out according to his purpose. You keep at work, you do not quit. And that describes the church in Thyatira, doesn't it? Even more so at the end of that verse, it says, and that your latter works exceed the first. So not only were they doing good things, but they were increasingly doing good things. That they were growing. They were growing in their service, in their, their good works. Now, our first church that we looked at was the church of, in Ephesus. And Ephesus was condemned because they had abandoned their first love. Their love grew cold. Where once they had this love, their, their love grew cold. Now here, Thyatira, their good works has, has grown. A, a significant contrast between the two churches. And yet, with all the commendation for good works we see that there was a great error in their doctrine. Look at verses 20 and 21. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Warren Wearsby says this, no amount of loving and sacrificial work can compensate for tolerance of evil. No amount of loving and sacrificial work can compensate for tolerance of evil. And that's what we're seeing with Thyatira. They, they had one thing right. They, they were doing good works and yet they erred greatly in their doctrine. They erred greatly in tolerating evil tolerating this false teaching, accepting this false teacher. And here Jesus refers to that woman Jezebel. And certainly this is a reference to take us back to the Old Testament. It takes us back to 1 Kings and 2 Kings, where we learn about this lady named Jezebel. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab. 
She was a wicked queen. She was evil personified. She led her husband to worship pagan gods. She killed prophets. She even had uh, murdered righteous Naboth, a guy named Naboth who, who uh, King Ahab wanted his, his vineyard and Naboth wouldn't give it to him. And so Jezebel said, well, I'll get it for you. And she has him killed. Jesus uses the name Jezebel here symbolically. It's probably not the name of the lady in the church. Like, let's be honest, who's naming their children Jezebel, right? No, nobody's naming their children Jezebel. And you who are pregnant, don't, don't name your children uh, Jezebel, right? So, so probably, most likely, this is a representation. This is a name, a, a, a placeholder name uh, to represent the teaching of Jezebel. Whether it's actually a, an individual false teacher that he's referring to, maybe, or the false teaching that was existing in the church, either way, it is representing the, the, the type of teaching, the kind of false teaching that Jezebel, that Jezebel taught back in the Old Testament, which led to the same kind of corruption. Now again, we want to remember the tensions here in the church of Thyatira. We, we want to remember that the believers existed in a, a city, in a climate, where doing business involved or there was pressure for them to, be, to have uh, paganism involved in their life or to kind of bow the knee, if you will. And this woman taught believers to go along with pagan practices, the pagan practices of, of these trade guilds, in order to preserve their business. Go along to get along in order to preserve their life. You stand up against this paganism, you're not going to have a business, and you might be persecuted. This was pragmatism. It was the end justifying the means. And yet we know that the end does not justify the means when the means is transgression against God's command. The problem was not only the teaching, which that was bad enough, but that the church was tolerating the teaching and the teacher. Here Jezebel was a self-proclaimed prophetess. She calls herself a prophetess, is what Jesus says. Not that she was a prophetess, but that she calls herself a prophetess. But clearly she was illegitimate, as she was leading people away from God and away from his word. Danny Aiken writes this, anything or anyone that gets your eyes off of Jesus is not of God. Anyone or anything that minimizes or adds to the gospel is not of God. Anyone or anything that compromises on biblical truth is not of God. So we can clearly see that the Jezebel would not have been of God. So she, she's not a faithful prophet at all. This church that may have first heard the gospel when the, the new convert Lydia from Acts 16 came back from being ministered to by Paul Maybe that's when they first heard the gospel. Now this church is tolerating, uh, permitting, uh, even refusing to confront the false teaching in their midst. False teaching is no small matter. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. Truth matters. In this day and age, we, we, we ask that, what is truth then, right? And what does Jesus say to that? My word is truth, John 17, 17. What we believe determines how we live. If we believe that doctrine matters, if we believe that what the Bible has said matters, if we believe that, then that will determine how we live. So we get out 
so uh, we had better get our theology right, right? If what we believe determines how we live, then we better be believing the right things because errant theology leads to errant living. Errant theology leads to errant living. We have a, a, a movement of what is sometimes called progressive theology right now that's really calling into question some of the very things that the Bible teaches. That's an errant theology. And it will have an errant fruit. A sinful theology leads to sinfulness. What we're seeing here in verse 20, this woman Jezebel was teaching, was seducing, false teaching. Who was she seducing? It wasn't the world. What does Jesus say in verse 20? Who does he say she's, she's seducing? My servants. Christians. Christian, you, you, you think that, that you're not going to get seduced. Jezebel was seducing the Christians. It wasn't the world that was believing Jezebel so much. This was a, um, a criticism against the church that, that Jesus is giving. Here the Christians are being seduced into what? Into practicing what God forbid. Practicing sexual morality and offering, uh, eating food offered to idols. That, that's idolatry. One commentator writes that this was a fundamental departure from the truth. This is spiritual unfaithfulness. It's moral corruption. It's unholiness. And here, at least some of the church was going along with it. They were tolerating it. They were participating in it. It's been said that what we tolerate, we become. And to tolerate unholiness means what? We become unholy. And the church is called to holiness. Tolerance of sin is the opposite of holiness. One writer named Andrew Davis says this, A church does not die apart from a decisive move away from holiness. How does the church die? How does the church die spiritually? It's a move away from holiness. Thyatira was moving away from holiness as they tolerated wickedness. What we need, desperately need, is a reclamation of the holiness of God among the church of Jesus Christ today. If we are to live in holiness, we must understand God's holiness. The reason that some Christians are so soft on sin is because of the loss of God's holiness. The reason that some churches look more and more like the world is because we have less and less of a proper view of God's holiness. When God's holiness is understood rightly, we cannot tolerate sin in our lives or in our church. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, your sinfulness, your life before Jesus, but as he who called you is holy, God, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now what does holiness look like? And, and how, do we, how do we get there? I invite you to turn your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 571. Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah receives a vision from God. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you know that that threefold refrain of holy, 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 that is the only, the only attribute of Jesus, of God, that is used three times like that. That's it. It never says that God is love, 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 or God is merciful, 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 or grace, grace, grace. No, holy, holy, holy. The repetition is to cause us to know, to understand, to recognize God's holiness. That's what the, the seraphim say. And then verse four, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, he's seeing all this. He's seeing that the, the, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. He hears the, the seraphim calling, holy, holy, holy. And what does he say? Woe is me. Alas, despair. Woe is me. Why? For I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What does Isaiah do when he's confronted with God? When he's confronted with the holiness of God, what does he see? He sees his own sinfulness. You know, the closer you are to God, the more you realize how sinful you are. The further we get away from God, that's when we feel like we're okay. The closer you get to God, the more you see his holiness, the more you see your own sinfulness. And that's what we see here in Isaiah, he's recognizing his lostness, his uncleanness, the uncleanness of the people that he is with. Then verse six says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. What do we do? What is Isaiah gonna do about his, his uncleanness? What is the hope? Here's this holy God. Here's a sinful me. Is there any hope for me? The seraphim comes with this coal from the altar and he touches my, li- my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. From the altar comes a coal to atone for his sin as he recognizes his own sinfulness. And what does Isaiah do next? And that he heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. What's Isaiah's response to the holiness of God? It's a recognition of his own sin, his need to be made right with God. And when his sin is atoned for, what is his disposition? I'm yours. Whatever you want from me, whatever you want from me, here I am, send me. We need a reclamation of holiness. We need to see again that God is completely separate not only from creation, which he is, but from sin. And he calls us to that same holiness. You know, you say, well, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I can't be holy. No, you can't be perfectly holy. You're right. But as we come to Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit. And what begins then is the process of becoming like Jesus. We use the word sanctification, being set apart from sin. Sanctification has multiple phases. In the one sense, when we come to Christ, we are sanctified, meaning God sees us in Christ. He sees us in Christ. That's why we can be accepted. But as we walk with Jesus, we are progressively set apart from him. That's progressive sanctification. It's only when we come to Christ finally, one day, when Christ comes to us or when we meet him, one day when we die, Christian, that we will be perfectly sanctified. Until then, we are in this middle 
ground, of, of growing, of sanctifying, of becoming like Jesus. We need to see God's holiness. And only when we see God's holiness do we see our sinfulness and recognize our need for him. Well, back to Revelation chapter 2. And Jesus then gives a warning. He gives a warning to this church. In Ephesus, we saw an unloving church that, that had the right theology. Right? They had their theology right, but they were unloving. Now here in Thyatira, we have a church that's loving, but they got the theology all wrong. Both are detestable. Neither one is okay with the Lord. Both deserve judgments. And Jesus gives a clear warning to the church, a caution in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, talking about Jezebel, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Behold, look, see, listen, pay attention. I will throw her onto a sickbed. I'm bringing judgment against her sin. And this judgment is fair. Why? Because he gave her a chance to repent. There clearly was an invitation to repentance and she would not. Once again, as with the other churches we've looked at, the solution to the problem the churches face is what? It's repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. Repent. Jezebel had an opportunity and she refused. So in the absence of repentance, judgment will fall. And we can actually see three judgments or three groups of, of, of judgment coming here in these two verses. First, it is to Jezebel, the false prophetess, who refused to repent. So what? I'll throw her onto a sick bed or a bed of suffering. And this, this bed of suffering is in contrast with, or this sick bed, in contrast with the bed of adultery that she had participated in and led others to participate in. The second group is those who commit adultery with her, those she seduced, those servants of God that she seduced. What's the judgment there? It's great tribulation. Now, this is, is not the tribulation, but it's great affliction and great suffering. And finally, verse 23 says, and I will strike her children dead. Now, this is likely not her physical children or biological children, but her followers, those who followed her. And what is the judgment here? It is death. God's judgment is just. It's just against sin. It's justice against sin. And it is a warning to others. Look at verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Listen, the refusal to repent brings judgments. And when the judgment falls, you're going to know, and everybody's going to know who I am. I am the one who searches mind and heart. I'm the one who has the flaming eyes of flaming fire. And I will give to each according to his work. Jesus is the one who sees. He is the one who knows. He is the one who will expose. He is the one who judge rightly according to our works. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Well, Jesus then turns his attention to the rest of the church in verse 24. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to the teaching, this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, that's the teaching of Jezebel, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. 
So to the faithful, uh, to those who did not follow the teaching of Jezebel, Jesus says these two things. I do not lay any other burden on you. Listen, the, the faithful do not need to fear the judgment of God. The faithful do not need to to fear the judgment of God. Those who will repent do not need to fear the judgment of God. Secondly, only hold fast to what you have until I come. Now, this is the first mention here of Jesus' coming. When Jesus returns, this isn't returning in judgments. This is returning to take the church to be with him. Only hold fast until I come. That, that language of hold fast, we're going to see multiple times. We've already seen it once. We'll see it two more times in chapter three. Hold fast to what you have. What do they have? They have the truth. They have the gospel. They have Jesus. Hold on to it. Hold on to the truth. Holding on to the truth doesn't mean just that we believe something, but that we live it out. To hold on to what you have until you come means living like you're supposed to be living in the world, which would involve, in this case, confronting sin, not tolerating false teaching, which the church had done. Jesus was calling them to faithful living. This letter concludes with a word of confirmation. Look at verse 26. The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end. We've, we've seen this conquer in the, the other letters as well. It means to overcome, the one who overcomes. To overcome means to believe, to believe by faith, to the one who believes, to the one who perseveres, to the one who keeps on believing. Danny Aiken writes, perseverance is proof of our profession. Perseverance is proof of our profession. The, the continuance of our belief proves what we say that we believe. To this one who keeps my works till the end, two promises. Continue in verse 26. To him I will give, we're going to see that again, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, as when I myself have received authority, even as I myself have received authority from my father. I will give authority over the nations. The promise to the church is that they will reign, that they will rule with Jesus. This is a reference to the millennial reign and rule of Jesus in Revelation chapter 20. What else? Verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. Revelation chapter 22 verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the th- that things, these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. What is Jesus saying to the second promise? The second promise is, I will give you myself. You get me. You get me. What is heaven? What is eternal reward without Jesus? And Jesus says to the one who perseveres, the one who's faithful, the one who believes to the end, what do they get? They get authority. They get to reign and rule, but with who? With Jesus. Jesus ends the letter with this repeated refrain in all of the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Will you hear what the Spirit says to the churches today? Will you repent? Will you believe? Will you be saved 
today? Will you recognize your sin? Will you look to Christ who died on the cross for that sin in order that you could be forgiven? Will you hear the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verse 15 where he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's an invitation in some ways, but it's also a command. The king, the kingdom has come. Repent and believe. Jesus is calling us to repentance. Now is the time. Do not wait another moment to come to Christ. Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time or the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. J.C. Ryle writes, tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote a sermon on 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Now is the acceptable time. I want to read this passage from that sermon for you. The most of my unconverted friends do not believe this. Now is the acceptable time. I know what you're saying, he says. You say, I've had a great many thoughts about religion, Spurgeon, but why dost thou not believe in Christ now? Well, you say, I will endeavor to think seriously about it. But what will be the result of your thinking? After you've thought ever so much, do you imagine that you will think yourself into salvation? If the gospel command were think and be saved, I would cheerfully allow you a month's thinking, but the command is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now is the acceptable time. But sir, I do not think things, I do not think things should be done in a hurry. A hurry when a man is on the edge of damnation, on the borders of the grave. Do not talk about hurry, sir, when it is the case of life and death. Let us fly swift as a flash of lightning. Well, I do not feel prepared. Do you think that disobeying God will make you more prepared? If you lived a month without believing, you have lived a month in sin. Do you think when you are sinning more that you'll be better prepared to obey the command which comes to you, believe now in the Lord Jesus Christ? Here is the quarrel between God and you. He says now, you say, no, no, it, it can't be true. When I am more convinced, then will be the time. My dear friend, are you not altogether mistaken? When the likelihoods are that you will never be more convinced, convicted than you are now. If you are brought now to think upon these things, your heart will certainly grow harder in course of time, but softer never. I never heard the case of a man whose heart was made softer by delay. Yes, yes, but I should like to get home and pray. Spurgeon says, my text does not say it will be accepted when you get home to pray. It says now. And as I find you, you are now in this pew. Now is the accepted time. If Christ, if you trust Christ now, you will be accepted. If now you're unable to throw yourself simply into the hands of Christ, now is the acceptable time between you and God. The moment a sinner trusts in Christ, he is saved. And if thou trustest him now, it is the day of salvation to thee. And to that we say, now is the time 
of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. Repent. Repent now. You are not guaranteed another day. You are not guaranteed another moment. Repent now. There is an urgency to the gospel. There's a, a, a certain urgency to the gospel. Repent now. Repent and believe. There's some who are Christians here today who need to repent. And to you we say the same thing, repent now. Today is the day. Like Thyatira, there are any number of false teachers and false teachings that present a threat to the church. We must hear Jesus' call to repent, to turn to him, to hold on to him as he will hold on to us. Our hope today, your hope today, is not in your faith, but in the object of your faith. Not in your capacity to hold on to him, but in the one who enables us to hold and the one who holds us fast. Let's pray together. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority, before all time, now and forever. God, it is you who holds us fast. It is you, the holy God, to whom we answer. It is you who judges rightly. It is you who determines right and wrong. Father, today I pray that as your word speaks, that your holiness would grip our hearts and cause us to repent and to pursue holiness today. For the one who comes here today who does not know you, God, would they hear your word, your invitation, your love, and your kindness to come, repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ for salvation, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven. For the one here today who sits in unrepentant sin, would you cause them to repent, to recognize the brokenness of their fellowship with you, the need to come to you in humility, as you draw, as they draw near to you, you will draw near to them. As they confess their sins, you will forgive their sins. Oh God, would you do a work? Would your spirit come? Would we listen to you today? Now is the time. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh God, you.